Good evening. Good to see all of you. Seems like there's an extra amount of children, young ones, youth with us tonight. They must have heard that I was addressing the parents tonight. So they came eager and ready to listen. Our text tonight is in John chapter 19, verses 25, 26, and 27, where we see Jesus hanging on the cross, hanging bloodied, beaten, whipped, crowned with a crown of thorns, nailed to the wooden cross of pain, and cursed in our place. So let's read John chapter 19, verses 25, 26, and 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Let's pray. Our good God and King... We see in Christ all of your perfections, your holy righteousness upheld, your great compassion, your great mercy. We see a faithful son. We see everything that we aspire to be, and we pray that you would speak through your Holy Spirit tonight, that you would feed us from your word, that we might grow more and more into the image of that faithful son every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we examined this text that has Jesus hanging from the cross. And we noted that even under great duress, he loved his mother. He made provision for her after he was gone. He put the disciple John in charge of her care. Jesus was being the faithful son by providing for his mother. He was fulfilling the fifth commandment of God, which is to honor your father and your mother. This commandment touches many areas of our lives because the principle of honoring those in authority over you extends not merely to parents, but also to employers, to teachers, to civil authorities. And last week we looked at the fifth commandment in a very practical manner, looking at the duties of children or the duties of subordinates, those under someone else's authority. And this week we'll look at the other side of the fifth commandment, the duties of parents And this sermon will mainly talk to parents, but please note that the principles are not merely for parents. They're for anyone in authority, whether you're a grandparent, or a teacher, or an employer, you're a boss, a manager, or even a civil servant. Furthermore, these principles are still relevant for children, even if they're not in authority over someone else yet. So young ones, do not check out from this sermon just because you're not a parent yet. It is useful for you to know the duties required of parents so that you can work with them towards the same ends, working with the grain rather than against it. Plus, Lord willing, you will all be parents one day too. So these are things to which you ought to aspire. And these duties, the duties required of your parents that we'll be learning about tonight would make a great prayer list for you as you think of ways to pray for your parents And lift them up before the Lord. Much of what I'm going to say tonight is drawn from the wisdom of men in church history. I would encourage you in particular to look up J.C. Ryle's book called The Duties of Parents. It's free online. 
And Thomas Watson, a Puritan, has sermons on the fifth commandment that are also free online, and they are both excellent. But let's begin. Number one, if you are going to train your children rightly, you must train them in the way that they should go and not in the way that they would go. You must train them in the way that they should go and not in the way that they would go. When your child is born, there are many things that you do not know. You don't know if they'll be skinny or if they'll be stocky or if they'll be tall or if they'll be short or if they'll be reserved and quiet or if they'll be boisterous and outgoing. But one thing that you do know is that they will naturally be inclined towards foolishness. Proverbs tells us that folly is bound up in the heart of a child and that a child left to himself brings his mother shame. So if you would deal wisely with your child, then you must direct them. You must teach them. You must instruct them. You must correct them. It is not wise. Indeed, it is hateful to let the child go in any direction that he chooses. All parents know that children need direction. You can't let them figure out things on their own. It is not loving to let a child figure out that stoves are hot by touching it. It is not loving to let your child find out that playing in the street is dangerous. You need to warn them, and not doing so is negligence. But our culture today has been led astray by false philosophies about the nature of truth, about the nature of revelation. People will actually tell you that we need to work with our children to discover our truth together, to make our truth. We need to let our children discover and experience their own truth. And if you buy into that, if you buy into the notion that children need to be left alone to discover their own truth, then you are letting them run headlong down the path of foolishness that leads to hell. Their heart is born with an aversion to God's truth. They're naturally blind to it and they hate it. And we need to correct them if we love them. We need to train them and warn them about the way they should go and the way that they should avoid Faithful parenting means using God's word to teach and to train, to exhort, to encourage, to discipline, to admonish, to correct, and to do all of this. We must train them in the way that they should go and not in the way that they would go. Number two, it's not enough for us to train them, but we must pay attention to the manner of our training. We must pay attention to the manner of our training. We must be... If we are to be faithful parents, patient and tender and loving. Harshness, coarseness, hateful parenting will undermine our efforts and will increase the child's resistance to the truth that you're trying to give to them. And it will indeed dishonor the Lord. J.C. Ryle says that love should be the silver thread that runs throughout all of our conduct. Kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, forbearance, patience a sympathy, a willingness to enter into childish troubles, and a readiness to take part in childish joys. These are the cords by which a child may be led most easily. And these are the clues you must follow if you would find the way to their heart. This is an idea, this is a principle that we all understand. If the goal is to lead a child into path of righteousness, then we ought to be sweetly leading them, not forcefully driving them from behind like cattle. None of us likes forced obedience, but all of us likes to be sweetly led. This principle applies to parenting and it applies to all in positions of authority. Adults 
At work, do your employees think that you are patient and long-suffering with them? Older siblings, would your younger siblings think that you are tender and loving with them? Or do they think that you're demanding and bossy? Teachers, do your students consider you a compassionate and gentle guide? Or do they see you as a severe dictator? Proverbs tells us that sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Sweetness of speech increases our persuasiveness. If we really want our children to hear God's word and to heed it, wouldn't we want to do everything in our power to persuade them? Wouldn't we want to remove from them every possible impediment that might keep them from hearing God's truth? And if so, we ought to be tender and patient and loving with them as we train them. Indeed, this is exactly how our Savior leads us. Christ doesn't bark orders at us. He gently woos us by His grace. He's not rigid and inflexible, never satisfied with our efforts. Instead, He grants us His Holy Spirit and guides us in all righteousness. He doesn't berate us when we mess up again and again, but He reminds us of His forgiveness. He picks us up and dusts us off. And He rejoins us in fellowship by His restorative grace. He doesn't keep a record of wrong and continually bring up our past mistakes. But He reminds us instead that His work on the cross has canceled our record of debt that was hanging over us. And He doesn't load us down with burdens and expectations that we could never meet. Instead, He comes to us and says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He promises us that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Christ leads us as a faithful master who doesn't harshly drive us from behind like cattle, but goes before us in righteousness. He doesn't ask us to do something that, we would never, that He'd never do. Indeed, He has done it all, and we merely follow His example with His spirit of power. He speaks to us tenderly and gently with much patience, patience for us who so often err. And in like manner, we must pay attention to the tenor of our training and be full of love and patience and tenderness. Number three, train your child with this thought constantly before you, that the soul of your child is of first importance. The soul of your child is of first importance. If you love your child, you will think of their souls often. You'll pray for their souls, and not merely for their behavior, for their safety, for their grades, or for their athletic performance. If you think of their souls often then you'll remember that this world and all of its glory is going to pass away, but their souls are eternal. You'll change how you make plans, how you think about their education, how you think about their activities, how you think about college, how you think about dating, how you think about privileges and freedom and responsibility. If you consider their soul, you'll be reluctant to spoil the child. One author says that to pet and pamper and indulge your child as if this world was all he had to look forward to and this life is the only season for happiness, to do this is not true love but cruelty. It's treating him like some beast of the earth which has no no other world to look forward to and nothing after death. It is hiding from him the grand truth which he ought to be made to learn from his very infancy that his chief end or his main purpose of life is the salvation of his very soul. Parents must not be distracted by this world and all of its cares because our children's hearts are naturally inclined to that same distraction, to the cares of this world. And we must be constantly realigning our sights, recalibrating our priorities according to the Word of God so that we can rightly lead our children in these spiritual matters. 
We must constantly remember the souls of our children and to treat with care their souls as a matter of first importance. Number four, parents must train their children in biblical knowledge. Parents must train their children in biblical knowledge. I admit we cannot make our children love the Bible. Only the Holy Spirit can do that, but we can introduce them to it and lead them to know it. I have never met a child that learned the Bible too well or learned it too early. If the previous point be true, that we must remember the souls of our children, then we must train them with a thorough knowledge of God's Word. If we're concerned about their souls, then we must have concern that they not be carried to and fro by all the new doctrines and false teachers of this world. The devil is not stationary. Paul tells us that he prowls around like a lion. He's not content to use the same old tricks, but he constantly repackages his same old lies, leading millions into error and lulling them into a stupor because of their lack of clarity in God's word. If you love your children, you will arm them with the sword of truth, with God's word, so that they can stand against the devil's lies. It would be a grave dishonor to a commander to send troops into battle with no weapons. And it would be likewise a grave dishonor to us parents if we sent our children out into the world defenseless. Giving them confidence in God's word, confidence in its truthfulness, in its sufficiency, in its uh, profitability for their own souls, in its eternal relevance to their lives. All of these things do not come naturally. They come through prayerful intentionality on the part of the parents. We must train our children in biblical knowledge. Number five, do not exasperate your children. Do not exasperate your children. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 6, 4, not to exasperate them or provoke them to anger. There is a way for us to lead, for us to parent that throws stumbling blocks in front of our children's feet and bids them to fall over them. We're impeding them instead of promoting them. And there are many, many ways to exasperate our children. I'll just give us a few. A first way to provoke our children to anger is to treat them with partiality. To treat them with partiality. That means we do not love and treat them with equal affection and attention. We cater to one of the children above the others. We favor one over the rest. And this temptation towards partiality is dangerous because it is so easy to do. If you have children or if you have worked with them, then you know that some children just click with you and others are there for your sanctification. Some of them have personalities that complement you and other children have personalities and interests that are less than complementary. If you're quiet and you like to read, then you will naturally favor a child that has the similar interests. Or if you're more relationally oriented, then you may appreciate the company of a child that is naturally affectionate and tender towards you. They're wired like you. It's true for parents and children, it's true for employers, and it's true for the church as well. We tend to gravitate towards those that are most like us, and we can do it even unintentionally by drifting into partiality. We give preferential treatment to those that we favor. We perhaps carry their opinions with heavier weight than others because we like them. We reward some more generously than we reward others for the same action. 
Or conversely, we can punish some children more harshly than we punish the other children for the same offense. We don't see the partiality in our actions. James chapter 2 condemns the very sin of partiality. He is specifically condemning the sin of preferring a rich man towards a poor man. But the principle of partiality is equally damaging in the home as it is in the church. Children, from a shockingly early age, have a very sensitive eye towards what they perceive to be as injustice. They can be tempted to anger when they see what they believe to be injustice. Joseph's brothers were enraged by their father's preferential treatment of Joseph, favoring him, giving him special attention, his coat of many colors, prizing him above all the other siblings. And we too can provoke our children by such behavior. But praise God that he does not treat his household with such partiality. God does not unjustly grant special salvation status on others while others he gives the bare minimum. He doesn't crown some of us with Christ's full righteousness and others of us have to prove our faithfulness by obedience. He doesn't give some of us the fullness of the Holy Spirit while others get merely a taste. Indeed, the Father has lavishly given out His grace to all of His children. He has poured out His love by sending His own Son and adopting each and every one of us into His household, making us co-heirs beside Christ. He's filled each of us with the fullness of His very own Spirit and promised us all an imperishable inheritance. And what is that great inheritance? That is His presence and His love for all of eternity. That's the gift for all of His children. We, can, we must avoid exasperating our children because of our partiality. Also, we can exasperate our children by having inconsistency in our standards. Inconsistency in our standards. You've probably experienced this in the workplace. Perhaps you've had a boss that was never happy. Always seems to leave you guessing. That's always got a moving target as to what's going to please them. They want something done one way this week, and they want it done another way the next week. And how frustrated you were. Well, the same goes for children. They can be provoked to anger if there is inconsistency in the expectations. If you let your st- the child stay out till 10 o'clock one Friday night, and then next week you say, you got to be home by 9.30, they will be frustrated. If you tell them to do A and B, and then you get mad at them because they didn't automatically know to do C, you will provoke them. If you define cleaning your room as making the bed and picking the clothes up off the floor, then don't get mad at them that they didn't wipe down the baseboards and dust the blinds. Keep your standards consistent. If you set an expectation that everyone needs to help clear the table after dinner, but you don't enforce that for weeks, and then one day you blow up and get upset because nobody's helping with the dishes, don't get mad. Be consistent with your standards and consistent with your application of those standards. Clear standards of obedience that are fixed and universally applied, that do not fluctuate based on our mood and our temper. That's how we need to train our children to avoid exasperating them. Also, we need to avoid, other than avoiding partiality and fluctuating standards, we can exasperate our children by being hypocritical. We can exasperate our children by being hypocritical. If you're a parent or you've worked with children, then you know that they 
come hardwired with an innate ability to detect hypocrisy. It's in there. You don't have to train them. They can sniff it out immediately. And when they see it, they will be tempted towards anger. If I expect my children to help out around the house and to do chores, that's a good thing. But if I spend all my time sitting in my chair, barking orders at them for everyone else to follow while I don't lift a finger, I will be seen as hypocritical. I would be hypocritical. I could perhaps give them a great biblical lesson about self-sacrifice and faithfulness and service, but if I myself am unwilling to help out, unwilling to be self-sacrificial and faithful and to serve, then I am being a hypocrite, and my children will be provoked by that. If I tell my children to speak kindly to one another, but I only do that by yelling at them, they will be tempted to anger. If I tell them to share their toys, and I never share with them my time and my attention, then I am being a hypocrite. If I tell them that it's good to read the Bible and pray to God, but I never do it myself, then I am being a hypocrite. If I tell them that going to church is important, and then I skip church to go play golf because it's a nice day outside or because there's some game on, I am being hypocritical and tempting my children to be angry. We must let our life preach the same message as our tongue and not let our actions undermine our message. Indeed, as you parents know very well, your children imitate you from a very early age. Are you giving them something worth imitating? Are you a living model of faithfulness that you'd be proud for them to follow? Or is your tongue undoing your message? Is your laziness or your apathy or your anger undoing the message you proclaim? The good news for us is that Jesus offers us a way out of our hypocrisy. He knows us. He knows the condition of our, of our heart and he came to die for our sins anyway. We need not waste any more of our life supporting this false holiness. We can come to him with all of our hypocrisy all of our pretension, and we can trust that He will never cast us out. Our lives are already fully exposed before Him, and yet He still bids you to come. He offers forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation. He offers new life in the Holy Spirit, a life of freedom and not a life of slavery to our comfort and our preferences. A life in the light and not in the darkness of irritability and anger. A life of authenticity rather than a life of fake superficiality. Christ died for the sin of hypocrisy and all you must do is come to him and he will restore you. He will give you a a genuine life of righteousness and he will atone for your hypocrisy. We must not exasperate our children by the sins of partiality, by having a fluctuating standard or by being hypocritical. Number six, in light of our current cultural moment, We need to think hard about training our children for adulthood. Specifically, we need to train our boys to be men and train our girls to be godly women. We need to train our boys to be godly men and train our girls to be godly women. First, with the boys. To train our boys to be godly men means first telling them that they need not be ashamed to be a boy, to be masculine. Indeed, one of the sins that Paul talks about in the New Testament is acting in an effeminate way. Is acting in an effeminate way. 
Boys need to be instructed on what it means to be a faithful man of God. And they need models of what true Christ-like masculinity looks like. And I'm not talking about macho, horsepower, guns, and things like that. I'm talking about a secure, steady disposition to pursue righteousness in every area of your life. I'm talking about a man that chooses to serve with faithfulness in every sphere of his life with Christ-like humility. It means for a man to protect those that need protecting and for a man to provide for those that need provision. In short, we need to train our boys to grow up to be men like Christ. Christ did not demand a throne and a title, but he washed the feet of those underneath him. He did not protect himself from harm, but willingly entered into battle to protect and save his wife. Christ did not cling to the comfort and possessions that he had, but willingly gave up all of them in order to to secure the provisions needed for his bride. Christ honored the Father with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. That is what godly manhood looks like, and that is what we have to prayerfully train our boys towards. Unlike the message of our current culture that thinks masculinity is a problem that needs to be weeded out of the human race, we need to train our boys to be righteous in their masculinity, to be just in their manhood, to be faithful in their role as husbands and fathers. In short, we need to train them to be like Christ. Similarly, we need to train our girls to be godly women. We need to train our girls to be godly women. Here are a few statements that the world considers hateful right now, but that were completely assumed as truth 50 years ago. Woman was made to be a helper for man. The wife should submit to her husband. Women cannot and should not be pastors. The rise of feminism has so permeated our culture that many of us cringed when I made those statements, even though they come straight out of the Bible. We hear the word submit, and we think it's a bad thing. We think it's evil, it's weakness, it's oppression. We want to immediately stand up and shout, yeah, yeah, but, 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 and we want to weasel our way around God's clear commands and patterns. We've been trained by the world to demand that women be equal to men in every role and in every way. And that's not what's in the Bible. It's not how God has made the world. In the garden, Eve was made from Adam's side. They were of the same substance, made in the same image of God. That means they were both equally worthy of dignity Because they're both made in God's image. God did not make Eve and then tell her that if she would become more like Adam, then she could have God's image on her. That's not what he did. No, Eve was made to be Eve, not to become Adam. She was made to help Adam. But the world preaches every day to our daughters the false gospel of feminism that says that men are the problem... And that every man oppresses women at every turn. And that feminism is the true goal for everyone. And that femininity is the true goal of everyone, including men. Get in touch with your feminine side. Be more like a woman and you'll be a better man. That's what the world says. We need to tell... um, We in the church have to push back against this false narrative. Just like the world proclaims a false message to our boys so too does it have a false message that impacts our ladies every day. 
We need to tell our ladies that true godly femininity does not mean weakness. Rather, it means a faith-fueled godliness and a trust that provides humility and wisdom. Trust in God that allows them to honor their husbands. Rather than raising girls that try to use every single platform to demand worldly notions of equality, we need to train our young ladies to pursue a gentle and quiet spirit. Like Peter says in 1 Peter 3. If you want to see a feminist head blow up, let them read 1 Peter 3. Gentle, quiet spirit that Sarah called her husband Lord. Not what the world wants to hear at all. We need to train our girls the practical skills needed to manage a household and to support her husband. If we send out young ladies who know the finer points of theology but can't cook a meal or manage a household, then we haven't done them any favors. And we haven't done any favors to the young men that they will marry. We're limiting our church's ability to minister through hospitality and love if we don't train our young ladies to become godly women. We need to warn them that this world is full of wicked men that want to lead them into sin. Ladies, when you graduate, you will head out into the world and there are men that will shower you with gifts and give you all the attention that your heart has ever craved. And they will praise your beauty and your charm and they will do it all with a sinister motive in their hearts. We have to warn our young ladies and we have to train them to know what true godliness looks like so that they can discern it in a potential husband. We need to show them what godliness is. And we need to have a church full of women that can model femininity. We can't tell our daughters that godly submission is a good thing if we are not willing to honor our husbands in our church. We can't model a gentle and quiet spirit if the wives of our church are being quarrelsome and demanding. And we can't train our daughters towards purity if we're full of all sorts of lusts and immoral behaviors ourselves. We must be models of chastity and discernment. And we should seek our daughters to prize the same. Men and women, I know that this is a very heavy burden. Raising children is a weighty thing. Weighty thing. This was a hard sermon to write, to be honest, because I see all of my failings in it. And you're wondering, have I done enough? Was my example too poor for my children? Well, I have some news for you. It was too poor. You weren't godly enough. You weren't as godly as you were meant to be. You got angry when you should have been patient. You were self-indulgent when you should have been sacrificial. And you were hypocritical and judgmental and lazy. But the good news of the gospel is that there is hope for failures like me and you. There is hope for people like us. There is hope for people that feel crushed under the weight of responsibility. The responsibility of raising little human beings into full adults. That's a huge responsibility. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that we can be forgiven for all of our failings. Every time that we were selfish and impatient and angry, that can be forgiven. Every time we neglected to do our duty, that can be removed. Christ died on the cross for selfish parents like me and you. Christ willingly suffered in our place, even though we wanted to do things our own way. Christ loved his wife even when she was unfaithful to him. And he did it so that we unfaithful husbands and wives might be restored to communion with him 
And even more than that, He has promised us the gift of His very Spirit. He has not left us alone to try and raise our children single-handedly. He has granted us His very own Spirit to guide us in wisdom and holiness, to enable us to carry our burdens to the Father. He has granted us His very own body, that is the church, to surround us with brothers and sisters to help us in this journey. The church is vital for us to be faithful parents. And this church reminds us of His grace. The church enables each other to carry our burdens together, collectively. And He's given us the promise of eternal joy and bliss in paradise when we finish this long race of parenting. We will be united with Him in heaven, removed from the thorns and thistles of this world, removed from the barriers, the inefficiencies, the ineffectiveness of parenting. And we will be singing His praises and enjoying His communion for all of eternity. That's the good news for tired parents, that God has provided all of us with forgiveness for our failings, strength and companionship for this journey, and promised us eternal joy when we reach our destination. And we have before us tonight another tangible reminder of God's lavish grace on us. We have the Father bidding us to come and join Him at the table of fellowship. We have the Son reminding us that He joyfully gave His own body and blood, that we might be made faithful sons and daughters, husbands and wives of the King. And we have the promise of the Holy Spirit to sustain us until our Lord returns. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the table, and then our servants will come. Father, we praise You and thank You for the gift of forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank You for the Holy Spirit who effectually calls us into this communion, who unites us to Christ, who feeds us even now from Your Word. And I pray that You would continue to feed us by the picture we have before us of Your body and Your blood broken. Bless these elements and bless our time tonight. In Christ's name, Amen.